thanks for braving Beta Breakers craziness and traffic to be here this morning. Great to be with you. Ryan is going to lead, read our scripture for this morning. Our scripture reading uh, for today is from John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate a pool in Aramaic, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up and take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place, in the, in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Thanks, Ryan. As most of you know, my wife, Sunny, and I welcomed home our second son, Zion, about four months ago, and he is a really sweet kid. He's recently started to coo more and more, make extended eye contact. He's been giving us just this gummy bear smile and laughing a little bit. It's, it's so great. He's really cute, but he's not cute all the time. He's got a bad habit of blowout diapers at the very worst moments. And I'm just going to stop there. I'm going to spare you the details. But let me tell you, that kid has a way <laughs> of uh, just blowouts when you want it the least. Um, whenever he has a dirty diaper, he's hungry, he's too hot, he's too cold, he's too tired, we hear about his needs. My toddler, Jude, is the same way. At age three, toddlers are known for big emotions. And whenever uh, Jude has a need, we hear it loudly repeatedly reverberating through the walls of our house. And anyone who's had a toddler or been around toddlers said amen. That's uh, just how it is with, with toddlers. Kids make their needs known, but sometimes between children, sometimes where between childhood and adulthood, we learn to keep our needs to ourselves. As adults, we usually don't like to be in need. And the whole American dream is built on the idea of self-sufficiency that we can eradicate personal neediness. And spiritually, that's a problem because neediness is required to enter and enjoy life in God's kingdom. Neediness is required to enter and to enjoy life in God's kingdom. 
And so our invitation is to specifically acknowledge our past and our present neediness. And as we do, we'll experience Jesus himself as the one who satisfies the deepest needs of our hearts. Let's pray, and we'll jump into our text for this morning. God, we recognize that you are here, that you're present with us by your Spirit. Would you open our eyes to see you clearly for who you are this morning? Would you move our hearts towards you this morning? Would you help us to experience the depths of your love for us? God, would you give us new understanding and insight into just how kind you are towards us as we move through this text? Would you give us the courage to look at ourselves? Would you give us the vision to see compassion with which you relate to each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So entering God's kingdom requires acknowledging our needs. Let's see how John sets up this story. Uh, We're in John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there was a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So John sets the scene here. There's this pool in Jerusalem where all of the neediest people in the city are gathered. And John draws our attention to one man there in particular who's been lying on a bed at this pool for nearly four decades try and enter into the story a little bit, think about how much time this man has been at the pool. Let's pretend Dave's over here. Dave just turned 40. Congrats, Dave. He ran a marathon to celebrate. No big deal. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, but let's pretend Jesus, or, uh, Dave's over here, age 40. And we're going to pretend Arlo's over here, age 2. The gap between Arlo and Dave is how long that man had been lying at that pool. 38 years. It's a long time. And over those four decades, healing has felt literally just out of reach for this man. Here's why. Continuing on, verses 6 and 7. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. And when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going into I'm while I'm going in, another steps down before me. It's a powerful question. It's a peculiar answer. What's going on here? Two problems in the text. First, the man is disabled. And second, the man can't get into the pool when the water is stirred up. Who cares? Why is, why is that a problem? Uh, well, speaking to this, commentator William Barclay writes, beneath the pool was a subterranean stream which every now and again bubbled up and disturbed the waters. The belief was that the disturbance was caused by an angel, and the first person to get into the pool after the bubbling of the water would be healed from an illness from which he or she was suffering. So this man's at this pool of healing. He can't get to the water when it's stirred up, and so healing felt just out of reach for him. 
One of my least favorite ailments in life is a headache. Raise your hand if you like headaches. Okay, good. We're all paying attention. No hands in the air. <laughs> headaches are the worst. Imagine if you had had a migraine for 38 years. And over the course of those 38 years, there was a bottle of Advil sitting just a couple feet out of reach, and you can't quite get to it. That's the situation that this man was in. He's suffering for decades, staring at what he believed to be the cure, but unable to access it. And that, for him, has likely taken away much or all of his hope. Enter Jesus. Jesus seeks out the place where some of the neediest people were in Jerusalem, which is a side note. Jesus, we, we read in John 1, he's revealing what the Father is like. He's showing us a true picture of what God is like. And it's amazing that he goes to the spot where the neediest people are in the city at this pool of healing. And then within this pool, led by the Spirit, he sees this one particular man and comes up to him, and they start to have a dialogue. And this man is fully admissive that he needs help. We read as we continue in this story, John chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. It's amazing. Jesus speaks to this man with the same powerful word in which he spoke all of creation into existence. And after 38 years of suffering, this man in an instant is healed by Jesus. As an aside, he can still do that today, but for now, we're going to focus on the story at hand. So what did the... Yeah, what's that? Yeah, so, yeah, let's, let's connect about that maybe after the service. Um, thanks, thanks for asking, Anthony. It's all good. Thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, so coming back to the story, uh, there's, there's the man's interaction and Jesus' interaction. So what does the man do in, in the story? He doesn't do much. All he does is acknowledge his need and that he wanted to be healed. What does Jesus do? Jesus does everything. The man was healed the moment that Jesus said the word. And the physical healing that Jesus accomplishes in the story is a picture of spiritual healing. It's a picture of salvation. The Greek word for, for healing and salvation are the same. The concepts linguistically are tied very closely together, and uh, in the writings of the biblical authors are very closely tied together as well. And so moving over to Ephesians for a moment, Ephesians chapter 2, we read that apart from Jesus, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Spiritually, we were all like this disabled man lying on a bed. We couldn't stand on our own two feet. We were totally dependent on someone coming to rescue us. And then Ephesians continues, moving on to verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
And so spiritually, Jesus brings us from death into life. He saves us. He heals us. When we were spiritually crippled, when we didn't have the strength to stand, Jesus saw us. He sought us out. He pulled us up to our feet. He embraced us and made us well. And then in his great love, called us his sons and his daughters. He does everything. Our only role is to acknowledge our need and respond to his invitation to be well. And that's why entering the kingdom of God requires acknowledging our need. That's why the church isn't a museum of perfect people. It's a hospital for hurting people. If you're a Christian, that's how you enter the kingdom. You acknowledge your need and receive the gift of God's love for you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and maybe you're exploring faith in Jesus, we're honored that you're here. And Jesus is inviting you this morning to receive the gift of his love for you. It's on offer whenever you're ready. When we do receive the gift of God's love, the gift of salvation, everything changes for us. Coming back to the story from John, verses 8 and 9 again, we read, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Notice that Jesus commands the man to take up his bed. He didn't have to do that. He could have just healed him and could have left his bed behind. But Jesus invites the man to take up his, man, his bed. And what a sight that must have been. Commentator Mickey Klink writes, What once carried the man is now carried triumphantly by him. Jesus turns a crutch into a trophy, a badge of honor declaring that he once was disabled, but is so no longer. And it's a whole new identity for the man. In verse 7, John refers to the man as the sick man. In verse 9, John just refers to him as the man. The same is true when we become Christians. We were all sick men and women. We were all sinners. But Jesus has made us well. Now we're saints. Just as a sick man gloried in being able to carry his bed, now we get to glory in how we've been forgiven by Jesus. We can talk honestly about our past. We can acknowledge how greatly we've sinned. We can be specific about our past sin. We can name it. We can own it because we have been forgiven fully by Jesus. Entering God's kingdom requires acknowledging our neediness. Or to put it another way, entering God's kingdom requires that we name the bed that we used to lie on. What's the bed that you used to lie on? To put it another way, what's the sin that Jesus has rescued you from? Like the formerly sick man, may we now boast in how Jesus has forgiven and healed us. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Just kidding, that'd be the shortest sermon ever. Uh, the story doesn't end there for the man or for us. But this is often where we end the story, isn't it? We can focus a lot on the past tense of the gospel, how the gospel was good news that our sins are forgiven and we can go to heaven someday when we die. But we can often, over, we can often overlook how the gospel is good news for right now, for our present reality. And so as we consider the present tense implications of the gospel, we'll see 
that enjoying God's kingdom today requires acknowledging our present neediness. Enjoying God's kingdom today requires acknowledging our present neediness. In this next movement of the story, John introduces the Jewish leaders. Uh, Any Star Wars fans out there? Yeah, that's like half our church. It's awesome. Um, I love Star Wars. I particularly love uh, episode episode four and the the opening sequence when you're introduced to Darth Vader is amazing to me. You hear the music for the Dark Side of the Force, da 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 da, da and you know through the through the <laughs> smoke, uh, Darth Vader just emerges, and you're just ready for this epic showdown between Darth Vader and Obi Wan Kenobi. That's this moment in the text. Because the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people see the light of Jesus, and they reject it. And it's a showdown. So let's see what happens in our lightsaber battle here. Uh, Verse nine, uh, second half of verse nine, picking up the text. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Think about all the ways that the Jewish leaders could have responded in this situation. <laughs> now that day was Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man, praise Yahweh, you're healed. This is amazing. No, their chief concern was that a man who had been disabled for 38 years and was miraculously healed is breaking their law. Now, what law was the man breaking? not the law that God had given his people in Torah. The, man, the law the man was breaking was the Mishnah, which the Jewish leaders added a bunch of rules on top of the Torah. Speaking to this, commentator William Barclay writes, the law simply said that the Sabbath must be different from other days and that on it neither a man nor his servants nor his animals must work. The Jews set out 39 different classifications of work. It's a lot. Uh, one of which was that it was considered carrying a burden. So he would have been violating the Mishnah by carrying his bed. The Jewish leaders saw that man healed by Jesus, and they rebuke him as their first response. They put the cart, their rules, before the horse, God. And to give an ounce of compassion, it started as something that was well-intentioned, a part of the reason why the Jewish people got into trouble over history um, of, of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament was because they didn't listen to God's law and uh, they broke Sabbath. And so the Mishnah was a response to that, but they got it wrong. And may it be a warning to us because we can do the same thing. We can put the cart before the horse all the time, just like they did. The point of Sabbath was to be a day of rest and of restoration, a day of worshiping and delighting in God, a day of shalom, of peace, of wholeness, And that's why on Sabbath, the Jewish people to this day say Shabbat Shalom. My family really enjoys practicing Sabbath, one of my favorite spiritual practices uh, that we we engage every Saturday. And one Saturday, we were walking uh, in our neighborhood in the outer sunset, and we ran into a Jewish rabbi. And he was in his full robe. It was wonderful. And he greeted us on the sidewalk, and he said Shabbat Shalom. And my heart just leapt a little bit. I'm like, Shabbat Shalom. This is awesome. It's Sabbath. (laughs) I loved it. Uh, Because those words are powerful. They're beautiful. Sabbath peace, Sabbath restoration, peace to you. Jesus perfectly embodies in this story the Sabbath and healing a disabled man. 
He brings shalom where it's lacking. And how do the Jewish leaders respond to him? They seek to kill Jesus because he breaks their made-up rules. They seek to make unwell the one who is making people well. The story continues, and after his interaction with Jesus, the man who was healed goes to the temple. Which is significant. It's the first time he could have gone there for 38 years. It's a huge moment. Uh, he gets to go to the place where heaven and earth kiss and worship God, and he runs into Jesus there. And we learn that the Jewish leaders are there seeking to persecute and kill Jesus. Cue the Darth Vader music again. Uh, and to push the Star Wars illustration just a little bit further, Anakin Skywalker was supposed to be a good guy. You watch the really lame prequel to uh, <laughs> 4, 5, 6, uh, and you, you, you like Anakin at first. He's, he's great, but then he chooses the dark side of the Force and becomes Darth Vader. And the same thing is true with the Jewish leaders. We read in John 1 that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why? The Jewish leaders did not see themselves as being needy. We see this in Matthew 9, verses 10 to 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was a magnet to those who knew their neediness. The rejects, the outcasts, the prostitutes, the sellouts, the poor are all gathered around a table enjoying a meal with Jesus in this scene. A symbol of his acceptance of them. And the Jewish leaders come in and they see this scene. They turn up their noses and they ask, why would Jesus spend time with this filth? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, and Jesus in, this, sorry, in this passage, Jesus beautifully responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus didn't come for those who think they have it all together. He didn't come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick and needy. And that's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you needy? Are you sick? Are you broken? The kingdom of God is for you. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? The kingdom of God is for you. Do you feel like you're not good enough, faithful enough, spiritual enough? The kingdom of God is for you. Acknowledging our neediness is how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And not just our past neediness, but our present neediness. The problem is that most of us have a hard time acknowledging our present neediness. Think for a moment about the typical story arc that you might hear from a Christian testimony. Point one, I used to do bad things. Point two, I got saved. Point three, now I don't do bad things and I do good things instead. Glory to God. Close in prayer. Uh, that tends to be how many testimony story arcs would go. And the challenge is that it represents 
a reductionistic view of the gospel that can completely miss the person of Jesus. Because salvation is not a one-time event in the past when we prayed a prayer. It's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. We need Jesus to both save us and to sustain us. Because salvation is ongoing. It's past tense and it is present tense. Salvation looks like every day acknowledging our needs, our sin, our inadequacy, and then moving towards the person of Jesus as the only one who can heal us, save us, satisfy us, and then enjoying nearness with Jesus all day long. What keeps us from that? Two main causes. One, we cover up our needs. Two, we're unaware of our needs. First, we cover up our needs. And we do that because we don't like to be needy. While in Jesus' kingdom, neediness is seen as a good thing, in our broader culture, neediness is seen as a bad thing. The American dream is built on the lie of self-sufficiency, that if we work hard enough, we can achieve happiness without needing anyone else. And so we often cover up our sense of neediness silencing our fear about the future through building strong bank accounts, covering up our sense of inadequacy by getting a good education and an attractive job, quieting unwanted emotions by making ourselves constantly busy and distracted until SVB fails or we lose a job or we can't control our emotions. But we try. We try and cover up our sense of neediness in these ways and more. But what if we're not even aware of our neediness? In our time and place, most of us have our physical needs met. Our power and privilege reduce the sense of material neediness for many of us in the room. And that's a stark contrast from those that we just read about in John 5 at the healing pool in Jerusalem. And it's a stark contrast from much of the global church today. This is one of the many reasons why Jesus warns us of the danger of having money. It reduces our sense of practical neediness and our dependence upon him. For better or for worse, this is the reality for most of us. So if this is our reality, uh, how do we experience our neediness? the primary way that most of us experience neediness is intangibly in our interior world. Specifically, our emotions reveal our neediness. Emotions are essential to recovering our sense of neediness. To understand this, think about children. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by this? Children are needy. My son Zion's four months old. He couldn't live for 24 hours on his own without Sonny and I attending to his every need. Can't feed himself, can't keep himself warm, can't get himself to sleep, at least not easily, at least not most days. <laughs> he can only helplessly lay on his back and cry and wait for Sonny or I to attend to him communicating needs to us that he cannot remedy for himself. That's what Jesus is talking about here, that we must become needy like a baby 
to enter his kingdom. My son Jude is, is three. Toddlers are known for big emotions. When Jude needs something, everyone in the house knows about it. Maybe even the neighbors, maybe even the next block. Uh, and while emotional regulation is a good thing, uh, most of us go beyond that and at times suppress unwanted emotions. Part of moving from being a toddler to an adulthood, of course, is learning to regulate our emotions, but, but we can sometimes even suppress emotions that we don't want to deal with. Why? Because most of us have had experiences that have taught us that certain emotions are bad and that we should not feel or express them. Certain emotions may have been shamed or criticized. And that can be especially true in Christian circles, where we tend to moralize certain emotions, seeing some emotions as good and a sign of Christian maturity, and some emotions as bad and a sign of Christian immaturity. An emotion that I'm quite familiar with is sadness. As many of you know, my mom uh, really removed herself from my life when I was in middle school and passed away when I was in high school. And for years, I couldn't access sadness about that. And a main reason for that was because I believed that the mature Christian response to this tragic situation was to show and say certain emotions and not say and not show other emotions. And so when people asked me questions like, how are you doing after my mom passed away? I would respond in ways like Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. It's going to be fine. And I got praised for my mature faith when I did that. And few people pressed in to actually know what was going on inside. And so over the years that followed, uh, I had a very difficult time accessing my emotions. And there was quite a bit of generalized anxiety that kind of masked up what was going on in my interior world as the repressed anger and sadness and fear uh, kind of got masked over by that anxiety. It was difficult for me to access what I was feeling. Thankfully, through years of therapy and Jesus' healing work in my life and Christian community, uh, I've been able to recover access to my emotions and it's changed everything in my life with God. Being able to name and experience what I'm feeling in a specific way, see the need that I have, and move towards Jesus in that place of need has changed everything in the way that I relate to him, and I relate to myself, and I relate to others. And while this specific trauma is certainly unique to my story, all of us can probably relate to a time when we were told that our feelings didn't matter. Or that a certain emotion was bad. Or that our feelings were too much. If you look at this list of emotions, my guess is that your default is to see some of those emotions as bad and one of those emotions as good. However, these emotions are not moral. How you respond to them is moral. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions, and he used every one to move towards God the Father. For us, like Jesus, each emotion is an opportunity to move towards God. 
Many of you are familiar with this chart. If we add over some columns. Uh, our church gathers on Sundays and scatters throughout the week in citizens' communities where we meet in homes and share meals and follow Jesus together. Twice a month, we engage in a practice called Gospel to the Heart, uh, where we use uh, this tool to help us be needy. And this is a simplified version to fit on this slide without too many words. Uh, but when we engage in Gospel to the Heart, the first step is awareness, because people seldom come to huddles knowing what they need. So this is a tool to help us identify what we need. Once we identify what we're feeling, then we can consider how we're responding to that emotion. Are we moving to the left towards a pyramid when we ignore our needs or try and meet them without Jesus? Or are we moving to the right towards Jesus to find what our heart longs for to be met in him? Every feeling is an invitation and an opportunity to move to the right uh, rather than to the left. And so the goal of this activity, the goal is to use our emotions as a guide to reveal what we really need and move towards the person of Jesus. To give a personal example, an emotion that I often experience is fear. And when I experience fear, uh, it often pops up because I see myself in a space of control and anxiety on the impairment side of that, that chart, which typically is because I'm trying to control circumstances or people around me doesn't go well. I have limited agency over circumstances and people around me. Uh, and so when I realize that I'm experiencing fear, I have a choice. I can move towards impairment or I can move towards Jesus. Remembering that I need Jesus because I have limited agency over circumstances and people around me. And so my fear is an invitation to move towards Jesus, to pray, to listen to him, to be with him. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 62. And I love how it paints a picture of Jesus as refuge and invites us to pour out our hearts before him. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And often the fear starts to fade as I enjoy being with the one who is my refuge. Not just slapping a theological truth on the fear, not just trying to believe better, but to be with the one who is my refuge. This is the invitation of all of our emotions. Every emotion, even the unpleasant ones, are a gift from God. Because they're an invitation, they're a means to an end of getting more of Jesus. Designed to remind us that we are not self-sufficient, that we are needy, and that our needs are most satisfied in God himself. So do you want to experience more of Jesus? The first step, a first step, is acknowledging what you are feeling. And so towards that end, I'm just going to stop talking for 30 seconds and invite you to reflect on what you're feeling today. Do any of the emotions on that list resonate with you? And as you've maybe identified an emotion now, 
consider how might Jesus be inviting you to move towards him today? How might he be inviting you to move towards the right? start to wrap up your reflection. Engaging in this kind of dialogue with God is how we get to enjoy greater fullness of life in his kingdom. It takes practice, it takes courage, and it's worth it because we get more of Jesus. Remember the good news of the gospel today for this present moment. Remember the words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel means that you don't have to have it all together in your interior world or your actions because neediness is required to enter and enjoy life in God's Perhaps Jesus is asking you this morning the question that he asked the man. Do you want to be healed? Would we acknowledge our present neediness and move towards him as the one who satisfies the deepest desires and longings of our hearts? Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. You satisfy. You make us whole. And I pray we'd experience you in this moment. And as we move towards the communion table, where we experience that reality. Would you give us, by your spirit, the courage to consider where our needs are and then to move towards you, to be honest with you, to pour out our heart before you and trusted others around us. God, that we would experience more of the fullness of life that you came to give us. God, in this moment, would a sense of your love rest upon us, a sense of your acceptance, a sense of your approval, just as we are right now, not as we should be, not as we hope to be someday, but just as we are right now. God, would that just rest on us? Will we experience, as we wake up each day this week, a sense of our neediness, and a sense of how near you are to meet those needs.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.